Galatians 3, 7 through 14. Therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And that the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. For as many as are of works of the law are under the curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things written in the book of the law to do them but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident. For the just shall live by faith. And yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree that the blessings of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Father, God, you've always had a people of faith. It's never changed. And so, God, I ask today as we study this passage that you will make people at North Valley Bible Church, a people of faith, a people that walk with you, a people that trust you, a people that is intimately acquainted with your ways through the person of Jesus Christ, and people that are filled with the Holy Spirit that makes that a reality for them. God, this is what we want. This is what we desire and God, we know that if we ask anything according to your will, we know that you hear us. And we know that we have the petition that we've desired of you. And so, God, today we confidently ask that you would reveal to us what it means to be a son of God, what it means to walk by faith. Father, that we would know the liberation and the freedom of the curse being fulfilled in Christ. God, and what does it really mean to have the promise of the Spirit through faith? God, guide us in this next few minutes as we discover your truth. God, I pray today that we will apply it. God, that we won't be hearers of the words only, just simply deceiving ourselves. But God, I pray that we will live this passage. It will glorify you. It will edify your people, God, and that we will see people come to know Christ because they see Christ in us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If I were to ask you, as we read this passage, what were some things that stood out to you? Um, I'm sure you would say faith, Abraham, the curse, the law. But there was a, a, a shift that you could probably see from 7 through 9 and then 10 through 14. One is salvation's history as it was revealed to Abraham. And the second is the curse 
for the Jew was revealed by the law. What a contrast. It's either faith that Abraham had, or it's the law that the, uh, or the demands that the law expects of us that brings nothing but a curse. Salvation has always been by faith in God's promises, and that promise was the future Messiah. And God foretold that to Abraham in that initial blessing in Genesis chapter 12. It was repeated in Genesis chapter 2, Genesis, sorry, Genesis 22, when Abraham offered up Isaac. He says, in your seed, and Paul's going to explain more in the rest of this chapter that that seed is singular. It is the person of Jesus Christ. So this is a passage that has a wonderful history of salvation and a wonderful deliverance from what the law could not fulfill. As we read this, we think of who Paul is writing to. He's writing to the churches of Galatia, Derby, Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. He delivered the decrees later on to these churches after the Jerusalem Council, saying that none of this stuff is necessary for salvation. And they had been been influenced by a group that had come from Jerusalem. They had been under the teaching of James and the other apostles, but they were very, very passionate about the Jewish law and about the Jewish traditions. And for them to think that you could cast off circumcision, that you could cast off those religious holidays such as Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, or the Passover, that that was not necessary to keep for salvation. Observing of Sabbath days was not necessary for salvation. Observing months, new moons, when sacrifices were brought, that none of that was necessary, and they came and they influenced these Galatian Christians who were just babes in Christ, and they came and they persuaded them. They were very, very persuasive. In fact, Paul says that they had been bewitched. And here is the irony in what they were telling these Galatian Christians. The irony was trying to use the law as a means of justification for the Gentiles when it was something that they couldn't even keep themselves. And yet they were trying to influence the Galatian Christians to keep something that they knew themselves was impossible to keep. They couldn't keep it. Their ancestors couldn't keep it. Everyone failed miserably under a legal system, and yet they were trying to convince Gentiles who had no past history of any of these traditions that somehow these would sanctify you. And so at the beginning of this passage, Paul asks several rhetorical questions. One was, how did you receive the Holy Spirit? Was it by faith in Christ, hearing the message, or was it through the works of the law? And they had to answer that it was by faith alone. Then he asks them, how does God work miracles among you? How does God do supernatural things? How is it that God supplies the Holy Spirit to you? Is it through faith or is it through works of the law? And again, they have to confess and admit that it was only through faith 
and the power of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm so thankful for those truths this morning. I'm so thankful that I and you have the Holy Spirit. We have all of God, all of Christ dwelling in us, not because we had to merit it, not because we have to keep it, because we have been sealed until the day of redemption by the Holy Spirit. And that when God sees our faith, and it's not trying to work up enough faith for God to do miracles. It's not working up enough faith so that God will hear and answer prayer. In fact, it is the faith of a grain of mustard seed that God honors. Because it's the object of our faith. The object of our faith is Jesus Christ and his finished and complete work. It is he who does the work in us and through us. So Paul concludes that first paragraph by saying, Therefore, Abraham, therefore, just as Abraham received all the blessings, so God is going to do to the Gentiles in verse 3-6. Therefore, or just as Abraham believed God, it was counted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are faith are sons of Abraham. Know this. Somehow, all of us seem to get off track. We can easily do this because we live in a merit-based society. But the gospel is not a merit-based system. Every one of us, by nature, seems to think in our minds that if I just do more, if I work harder, then such and such is going to happen. And that's just humanistic thinking. It's human reasoning. We have complicated the simplicity of the gospel in our Christian lives. We have complicated church in modern-day Christianity. We have replaced the person of Christ, the power of Christ, the passion of Christ, and we've replaced it with programs. If you'll come to this program, if you'll be a part of this group, if you'll do this class, if you'll do this session, if you'll do these 12 steps, blah, 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 it goes on and on. But the simplicity of it is the power of all of it is in the person of Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying programs are wrong and we shouldn't have teaching and we shouldn't have classes, but those things are not a substitute for the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, they are far, far from what he can do. We have replaced relationships and meaningful interaction with other believers for quick-fix accountability plans. We've exchanged form for real, heartfelt religion. And this is what God has always desired. He has never desired performance alone. He's always desired that our sacrifices would be a broken and contrite spirit. That's what God has always wanted. Abraham simply did nothing other than believe the promises of God. And whenever Abraham tried to do things in his own power, in his own strength, Abraham always miserably failed. When he would go into Egypt, he would lie about who his wife was because he was trusting in his own plans, his own wisdom, and his own 
ability to, to fool Pharaoh, whoever he was. And then God would send a dream to the guy who was looking at his wife, and he would plague the, the house of Pharaoh, and, and, and God would have to use an unbeliever to rebuke Abraham. So Abraham wasn't just this perfect guy who lived everything right. He, he messed up a lot, didn't he? He hears a promise from God, and you know what he says? He says, let Eliezer, let him be the heir. He's my slave. He's, he, let him. And God says, no, I'm not going to do it that way. I'm going to come through promise. And then after that, he gets an idea from his wife that, God, I don't see this promise coming, so I'm going to try it with Hagar. And they have Ishmael. And again, this is not what God wanted. And we do the same things. We complicate the Christian life because we exchange our way of doing things for simply trusting implicitly in who God is, His character, and His faithfulness. So at the age of 99 and the age of 90, whoa, my goodness, Sarah conceives and has a child. That's the kind of man, that's the kind of people that God wants us to be, that we trust God. When we are at our limits and we have no resources and we can absolutely do nothing to merit what God is going to do in our lives, it was physically impossible it was spiritually impossible. Abraham didn't have a chance of having a child. And yet when God took him outside, he says, look at those stars. That's what your seed is going to be. And Abraham believed in God. He believed him. This morning, I want you to look at your sin. And I want you to say to yourself, Jesus Christ paid for every single one of them. And I want you to say, I believe that. I trust that. I implicitly believe the promises that Jesus Christ died in my place. And if you can genuinely say that in your heart, you have righteousness imputed to you right now. Keith was teaching in Sunday school. We, he was talking about the sinner's prayer and how it's never found in the Bible. Abraham never got down and said a sinner's prayer. He believed God. I remember when I was in Ireland, I'll get back to another Ireland story, and, and it was a lady that came to Bible study week after week after week, and I sat down with her, and my wife went through the plan of salvation with her, and then we were going to lead her in the sinner's prayer. And she looked at us like we had two heads. And she says, why are you leading me in this prayer? She says, I already believe all of this. You see, it is faith alone. A child can believe that. A scholar can believe that. It doesn't matter. Justification, when God declares you to be right, it is always based on faith. The law, what does it demand? The law does not demand trust. The law demands obedience. And what God wants is our hearts. God wants our hearts. He wants implicit trust. One thing that the law could never do, and that is to give righteousness. All the law can do is bring us a curse. Ever since man was put outside of the garden, he was put outside of God's hedge of protection. We live in a fallen world now, don't we? It's no longer a garden. It is a fallen place, and that's where you and I live. 
We live under the sway of the wicked one. We all have a propensity towards sin because we in Adam have all died and we've all sinned. That doesn't mean I'm guilty. That doesn't mean you're guilty for Adam's sin. No, you are guilty for your sin when you transgress the law. It means that you and I now are alienated from God. We're outside. But doesn't mean that you and I are a corpse, however. We can still respond to God. We still have a conscience. We still know right from wrong. And now God is extending us complete grace in the person of Jesus Christ. You and I violate the law constantly. That is why we need grace. Grace is never a license to sin, however. In fact, grace teaches us that you and I have been nailed to the cross with Christ. Grace teaches us that we have been resurrected to walk with Christ. Grace now enables us. Grace now empowers us. And it is all through faith. And that's what Abraham exemplifies to you and I. Another thing that I notice about this passage is quote after quote after quote from the Old Testament. He says, you who are trying to Judaize these people, you are trying to bring them under the influence of Jewish law. Let's use the Jewish law for what the Jewish law was actually meant for. So he starts quoting the Jewish law. In you, all the nations shall be blessed. Jewish law, Genesis 12.3, Genesis 22.18. Cursed is everyone who does not continue in everything written in the book of the law to do them. Let's live by the law, Deuteronomy 27.28. Yet no one is justified by the law, but, but it is evident the just shall live by faith. Habakkuk 2.4. He's just going to keep giving them, these, these Jews, all the law that they want. Cursed is everyone who hangs on the tree, Deuteronomy 21, 22 and 23. Law after law after law, Old Testament after Old Testament after Old Testament. You want to become a Judaizer? You want to put yourself in Hebrew law then? Then let's do exactly what the law says. Justification is only by faith. The law can only bring a curse. Jesus actually quotes Leviticus 18.5. That verse is... Um, the last half of verse 12. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man who does them shall live by them. Jesus actually quotes that part of Leviticus 18 to a lawyer. The lawyer came to Jesus and he came to test him. And he says, what law must I keep? What must I do? How can I merit salvation? Jesus was brilliant because he was God in human form. But he says, what is written in the law? Because the man asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? He says, okay, you want to do something? Let's go to the law. What is written in the law? And the lawyer wisely answered, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, and with all thy mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You know what Jesus did? He quoted Leviticus 18.5 or 18.15. Do this, and you shall live. 
he had failed to live up to that commandment his entire life, that lawyer, if he was honest. He didn't love the God with all of his heart, with all of his soul, and he didn't love his neighbor the way he loved himself. And we know that because it says he tried to justify himself. That's what we do when the law looks us straight in the face and we don't like it. We start to rationalize it. We start to justify it. We start giving excuses. And so he gave the same excuse that you and I, well, who's my neighbor then? And Jesus told him a parable. At the end of the parable, he knew that he didn't love his neighbor like that Samaritan did in that parable. He says, go and do likewise. So the beauty that Paul is putting for us, the beauty of the history of the law, Abraham is the story of salvation in the book of Genesis. And so in verses 7 and 8, we see that there's a continuity throughout salvation history. Therefore, know that only those who are faith of the sons of Abraham. The word therefore is drawing a conclusion. If righteousness has to be imputed to us, we can't merit it, we can't earn it, therefore you and I know something. We know that only those who are of faith are really the children of God. True children of God are people of faith. So when you see this phrase in your New Testament, that those who are of faith... That's a genitive expression in the original language. And what it means is those people who come to God on the basis of faith. On the basis of works or on the basis of faith. Know that those who respond to God on the basis of faith, these are the children of God. Christianity throughout history and before Christ came, it has always been the same. God, what really matters to God is what is in our hearts and how we relate to God. This has always been. These are the children of God. In Romans chapter 2, Paul puts it like this. One is not a Jew outwardly, but one is a Jew inwardly. Not the circumcision of the flesh, but the circumcision of the heart, not by the letter, but by the Spirit. Those have always been the children of God. So therefore we know this certainly. Then he says that the Gentile inclusion has always been a part of God's plan. It's never been Jew only. Abraham was the patriarch for the Jewish nation. And they never really understood who Abraham was and what Abraham under, represented. When you go far into the law, you will never really understand that. When Jesus met the Pharisees in John chapter 8, he said, you will continually abide in my word, then you'll be my disciple indeed, and then you will be free, and the Son will make you free. And you know what the Jews said to him, that who kept the law meticulously, those Jews said, we have never been in bondage. They didn't even remember their own history very well. They've been in bondage to the Babylonians. They've been in bondage to the Assyrians. They've been in bondage to the Egyptians. But they claim that they've never been. And, and Jesus said, whoever practices sin, you are the slave to sin. That's who they really were in bondage to. And they said, we are Abraham's descendants. 
Jesus said, you are not Abraham's descendants because Abraham didn't do what you're doing. If you were Abraham's descendants, he said, you would love me. That is what God wants from you and I. And this is life eternal, that you might know him, the only true God in Jesus Christ whom he sent. When you love Christ and you embrace him and you revel in his victory over sin and his triumph resurrection, then you are a child of Abraham and you're a child of God. Jesus went on to say, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it, and he was glad. Abraham knew that there was going to be a resurrection, didn't he? He took Isaac up to that altar confidently, it tells us in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, that if I lay my son down and I slay him, I know God will raise him again, because God has promised that in this seed, this child, every nation is going to be blessed. So God, you're going to have to do something supernatural. That was the kind of faith Abraham had. And that's the heritage that you and I are to walk in, the same as Abraham. So then those who are of faith, we are blessed alongside of and with the believer Abraham or believing Abraham. And what was the blessing? The ultimate blessing was imputed righteousness that you didn't have to merit. I love what Paul says about Scripture here. He personifies it in verse 8. And the scripture, the scripture, the graphe, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel before to Abraham. So when God spoke to Abraham and when the Bible wrote that down, it is as if God was speaking. I, I can't, you probably can't, I, I can't get the, the point across enough, but, but just meditate on this for a second. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify, God, by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand. So when you and I, and this is kind of a little bit of a rabbit trail, but when you and I pick up the Bible, it is predicting, it is telling us everything you and I need to know. He he substitute the word scripture for it as if it was God, because it is God. All scripture is given by inspiration, theonuptos. It is the breath of God. The scripture makes no mistakes. When the scripture foresees something, it is fulfilled. That should give you and I some confidence. There's some application to this, isn't there? If the, if the scripture foresees something, and the scripture tells us and promises, it's as if God was promising us something. And you and I can stand on it. And that's the way we are to live our Christian life. If the Bible says it, I can trust it implicitly. If Abraham can do it, you and I can do. Abraham believed in hope, contrary to all hope. He didn't regard his body as if it was already dead, but he counted him faithful, given the promise, giving glory to God, and was strengthened in faith. That's the way God wants us to live and walk our Christian life. So simple. When we put ourselves under law, all we're doing is putting ourselves under a curse and an expectation that we could never live up to. Jesus, in the person of Jesus, all of God's promises to Abraham are fulfilled and all the law's demands 
have been satisfied. What a wonderful message. Everything that God demanded of you that you can't do, it has been fulfilled. I know that a lot of us struggle in our Christian walk. We we struggle with with doubt, with with self-esteem, with discouragement, with with depression, with failures, with with besetting sins that just seems to, to, to ensnare us, and we don't have to live there. All of those things are because of the curse. And all of those things have been defeated. Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, he took the handwritten ordinances that were contrary to you, that were against you, and he nailed them to the cross, taking them out of the way. And when he did that, he disarmed principalities and powers, triumphing over them in the cross. That's what Christ has done for you. The law cannot do that. And you can never merit the law or merit anything in any of God's favor by the law. You, you can't do it. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things written in the book of the law to do them. What did it say? It said all of it. You can't stop at circumcision, Judaizers. You've got to include the rest of it. All of it. And you simply can't do it. You see, the law is a composite. It is a unit. And when you break one of it, you in fact have broken all of it. James tells us this. Let me just quote to you from James chapter 2. James chapter 2. If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I love that James used that one. Because James is so wise, and the Holy Spirit used James to write this because he knows that that one commandment, if you break it, you've essentially broke five commandments. When you lie, you're not loving your brother. You're not loving your neighbor. When you covet, you are not loving your neighbor. When you bear false witness, you are all of it. It's a unit. He says, you just break one of them. He goes on to say, But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and you are convinced by the law as a transgressor. When I was studying this week, I was so convicted by that verse. How many times do you and I show partiality? There are certain people I just like being around. And it's a lot of fun. I get on with them. And there's other Christians that just, oh boy... None of you folks. (laughs) But we show partiality, don't we? And when we do that, we have broken the law. We have transgressed. And we are convinced by the law as a sinner. So whoever keeps the whole law yet offends in one point, he is guilty of all. So that's what Paul is saying here in verse 10. You can't just pick and choose. It's an all or nothing. Any infraction of the law constitutes a violation of the law. And then in verse um, 11, he says, But that no one is justified in the sight of God. I want to look at that phrase, in the sight of God. 
It's para to theo. Para to theo. Para doesn't mean in the sight of. Para means, it's a preposition, it means to be alongside with someone. And so what Paul is really emphasizing, it is so evident that you can't be justified because if we put ourselves alongside with a perfect, holy God, it is evident that no one is justified by works. When Peter, when he was in that fishing boat, I don't think Peter thought of himself as a horrible sinner. I think Peter probably thought he was a pretty good guy. In fact, if somebody came up to him and said, would you consider yourself a good person? He started to say, yeah, I'm not too bad. Well, let's put Jesus in the boat next to you. Fished all day long, didn't catch a thing. Jesus said, throw the net over here. Took in such a company of fish that they put him in the boat, and the boat began to sink. Remember what Peter did? He got on his knees. He was beside. It is evident when he was beside Jesus Christ, I am a sinful man. That's what Paul's meaning here. It is evident. And then he gives another quote. It is evident, for the just shall live by faith. The other evidence is that this is what Habakkuk said. Now, we've got to know the context of Habakkuk. Habakkuk 2.4 is where this is spoken. In Habakkuk chapter 1, God tells him that he is going to use this incredibly evil, wicked, vile nation to chastise God's people. And Habakkuk is in this quandary. God, that just doesn't seem right. A nation that's more wicked than us is going to judge us and punish us? And then God tells Habakkuk, he says, you write it on a tablet. And you write it so the one who reads it can run with it. Even though the message is going to tarry, you wait for it, for it will come. For the just shall live by their faith. You might not see it right now, but you run with this message because it's going to come and you've just got to trust me, you've got to live by faith that one day the Chaldeans, they're going to get their comeuppance. And boy, they did. The Medo-Persian army walked right under the walls of the city of Babylon and took the kingdom, Cyrus the Great. You just trusted to God. It's evident that this is the way you've got to walk with God. You don't have to have all the picture. You don't have to understand how all the pieces are going to work together. It is evident that this is how God has always worked. You put yourself alongside God and you'll never measure up. And when you try to figure God out, you'll never figure it all out. You have just got to implicitly trust Him. So this is what Paul is telling us today as well. Yet the law is not of faith, but the man that does it shall live by them. You've got to keep it up. So let's finish out what, um, what Jesus was telling that lawyer. He was telling the lawyer that the law demands 100% compliance. And here's the incredible result of Christ becoming a curse for us. So since we can't live by the law... And because the law brings a curse, what has Christ done? 
Christ has redeemed us. Now, that's, that's a powerful word. We don't use it a lot. Um, I remember when I was a kid, we had these S&H green stamps. Grew up in northern Illinois. I don't know if you all had them here. But, man, you'd, my mom would go to the grocery store, and X amount of groceries, they'd look at it, and they'd give her all these green stamps. And I got to, you know, stick them in the book for her. That was so much fun. We'd lick them and, you know, stick it. And when we got all these books, we could go into the store and redeem something. We could purchase it at that price, and we would replace all those green stamps for something. I don't know, a piece of, you know, camping equipment usually, you know, a Coleman lamp or something like that. And that's the idea of the word to redeem. It means to, to, to pay or to purchase something out of the agora, out of the marketplace. That's what, it used, that's what it means literally. But when it's used figuratively, it has a different, same idea, but a different spiritual connotation. So if I can find my, my definition here, what it means to redeem, uh, it means figuratively to set something free from the power of dominion, especially of a law, by a vicarious act. A vicarious, we don't use that word very much either, vicarious. Vicarious is a good word that we ought to put in our vocabulary, but it means in the place of or as a substitute. Jesus Christ vicariously took your place. You and I are under the curse of the law because we can't keep all of it. We look at God and we look at His holiness and we fall so short of His glory. We know that we have to live by faith and we don't understand all these things. And God has taken all of our sin, everything that violates His holy nature and character and will, and He put it on Jesus Christ. And He has ransomed, He has redeemed, He has set us free from all the condemnation that the law was to bring us. How did Jesus do that? Well, we know he went to the cross. But there's a verse in Galatians that says, When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son born of a woman, born under the law, and here it is, that he might redeem them who are under the law. It took a human, didn't it? He had to be born of a woman. The man that sins, Ezekiel 18, shall die. Christ lived the perfect life. We're told that he was tempted at all points just as we are, yet without sin, Hebrews 4, 16. He became under the law. Jesus Christ fulfilled every single law, every letter of the law meticulously. Jesus said this. He says, think not that I came to destroy the law, Matthew 5, 17. I did not come to destroy the law. I came to fulfill it. And then thirdly, how did Jesus become the curse? In Jewish law, to blaspheme, you should have been stoned. But they said, crucify him, crucify him. And Deuteronomy 21, 22 says this, if any man has committed sin worthy of death, and he shall be put to death, and thou shalt hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain all night upon the tree, but thou shalt in any wise bury him that day. Jesus Christ died at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. 
they went into Pontius Pilate. He said, is he dead already? And they said, yes. He gave the body to Nicodemus and to Joseph of Arimathea, and they buried him that day. For he that is hanged on the tree is accursed of God. He became the curse for us. Look at verse 14, and we'll close. Look at the two that's. That the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles. And the old King James says, through Christ Jesus. But the preposition is epsilon nu, n, which literally means in Christ Jesus. When you are in Christ Jesus, all those blessings that God had promised Abraham and primarily the blessing of justification. When you are in Christ, God made him, Jesus, to be sin for you, the one who knew no sin, that you, what, might be the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. What a blessing. That's what the curse accomplished for you. And then the second word that is in the second part of this problem, verse. So the first one is the the purpose of the blessing. And the next one is the result. When you and I are justified, we receive the promise of the Spirit through faith, through faith. Jesus removes the curse. What matters to God has always been the matter of the heart, isn't it? When God has our heart, when He has you and I, the very core of who we are, we trust Him implicitly. And when we trust Him implicitly, perfect peace is given to you and I. What a blessing! He gives us complete righteousness. It's granted to our account on the basis of faith. We have the Holy Spirit. It's a promise to you and I. We don't work for the Holy Spirit. It's a promise, and we walk by the same empowerment as we received the Holy Spirit. Maturity is simply walking by faith, not with human sight through our eyes, but through the eyes of faith. So I want to ask you this week, what will you do this week because you're a child of God? What will you do differently? How will you think differently? How will you talk differently? Now those who are of faith, they are the children of God. It almost sounds blasphemous, doesn't it, to say, I am a child of God. But we don't say it proudly, we don't say it boastfully. We say it with great humility. I'm a child of God because of what Jesus Christ has done. We need to talk like we're children of God. We need to think like we're children of God, and we need to act like it. So what will you do this week differently, realizing that you are a child of God? How will you let the Scripture be your authority? The Scripture says beforehand such and such. What is the Scripture telling you that you need to take by faith and to trust and to believe. Now, something else that we can do this week. How will you trust Him? And what will you trust Him with? Maybe there's something that you just can't figure out. 
And like Habakkuk said, I have just got to live by faith in this situation in my life. What area of God's holy law do you need to allow the promise of the Holy Spirit to enable you to fulfill? See, God hasn't done away with the moral law, has he? The law is still in fact. In fact, there's over 650 imperatives in the New Testament. Those are commands. But those commands are not fulfilled in your flesh. They are fulfilled because now you have the promise of the Holy Spirit. So I pray this week that some way God will show you how to apply this passage of Scripture. But our salvation is so great, isn't it? It was free for you and I, but it cost Jesus everything. The curse has been lifted so that the blessings of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Let's close together. Father God, we thank you. We thank you that your law is so good, so pure, so holy, so just. And it is so evident, God, it is so evident that none of us, when we place ourselves alongside of Jesus, could ever measure up. And God, it is so evident when we compare ourselves to those in the days of Habakkuk who just had to trust God for what they could not understand and could not figure out. God, it's evident that, that we have to live the Christian life empowered by faith, enabled by the Holy Spirit. God, we thank you that Abraham is our example, that God, that all he did was believe, and you accounted it to him for righteousness. God, today we should be rejoicing that, God, that you no longer see us as sinners, but you see us as your children, and you see us as covered by the blood of Christ. Thank you, God, for this good news, this wonderful message of the gospel. Help us to live it out this week, we pray.